Genesis chapter 2, let's begin reading at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Lord, I am um, I'm so mindful of your presence and of my own inadequacies today. So I pray that you will make up for every place where I am inept and that people will not hear so much what I have to say as they will hear what the Spirit will say to them while I'm talking. Open our hearts that we may hear and receive your word today. I lift up other life-giving churches to you and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Draw them back to you. Don't let one of them be lost, I pray. I thank you for hearing our prayer. That I pray today in the only name that matters. The matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting to me to note a shift in collective thinking that has occurred in the last, oh, 50 to 60 years. In our country, we are deeply committed, I might even say fanatically committed, to the concept of tolerance. In fact, tolerance has become the new God before whom our culture bows. The truth is, we've always believed in tolerance. But in the last 50 years or so, the meaning of tolerance has done a complete 180. The concept of tolerance used to mean you could believe whatever you wanted to believe, and while we may disagree with you, we would defend to the death your right to believe it. We tolerated people, no matter what they believed, but we discriminated between and against views. 
We accepted some views as absolute right and rejected other views as absolute wrong. But we accepted, we, we tolerated the person holding the view. Today, however, we are the product of more than 50 years of teaching that began in our universities and has now filtered down even into the classrooms of our youngest children that says there are no absolutes. One idea is as good as another. No value is more right than another. They're just different. In today's society, the idea of tolerance is a group think of what has become culturally acceptable. Anyone who disagrees with the common thought is vilified, called a bigot, and rejected. In today's world, we have a cancel culture that tolerates and accepts any and all ideas as valid, but discriminates against and is intolerant and cancels people who want to challenge what the culture says is acceptable and normal. Into this kind of world, the church is called to be a prophetic voice. We are called to proclaim, both by the words we speak and by the lives we live, that there is absolute truth. There is a standard by which to determine what is right and what is wrong. We are called to proclaim Proverbs 14 and 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We are called to proclaim Romans 12 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Make no mistake about it. The message of the church and the message of the gospel is strange to this world. And there's perhaps no place where this is more evident than the area of sexuality. In the Old Testament, the holiness code written into the law of God for his people was given while they were living in a pagan culture whose practices were completely opposite from what God was requiring from his people. Later, New Testament Christianity emerged in a Greco-Roman environment that found the, the Christian sexual ethic just as shocking and strange as American culture increasingly does now. God's plan for the sexual conduct of his people is the same today as it has always been. Culture has changed, society has changed, tolerance has changed, but God's design has not changed. I want you to understand something right up front. God's primary objective is not your happiness. His primary objective is is your holiness. His plan for your life and mine is revealed in Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. His plan is repeated in 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. His plan is Hebrews 12.14. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Now, one of the best ways to understand God's plan for sexuality is to go back to the very beginning and see God's original design. You can find God's master plan here in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. In these chapters, we have the description of creation, and it's interesting to me to hear God's response to everything he creates. After every day of creation, the creator stepped back, surveyed all he had done, and pronounced a divine benediction. That's good. Everything's good until you get to verse 18 of chapter 2. And there we find, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Reading that, I would naturally expect the next verse to say something like, so God created Eve. But that isn't what happens. Instead of immediately giving Adam a marriage partner, God gives him an assignment to name all the animals that had been created. <laughs> Apparently, God knew it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, but Adam didn't know it wasn't good until he spent some time observing God's creations and God's creatures. God saw the need for Adam to have a helper, but he delayed until Adam saw his need for one. You know, by the time Adam started with Mr. and Mrs. Aardvark and got all the way down to Mr. and Mrs. Zebra <laughs> and saw there was Mr. and Mrs. of everything else, but he was just Mr., he realized something's missing here. Now, there are a lot of lessons we can draw from this passage, but I want to focus on a couple of things that jump out at me because they speak to two controversial issues that have arisen in our culture concerning this subject of sexuality. The first has to do with identity. The subject of gender identity has gained a lot of press in recent years. In today's society, we have people insisting they are a different gender from what appears on their birth certificate and from what their biology reveals. Men are identifying as women, and women are identifying as men. They've even developed a category of gender fluid. Lawsuits have been filed advocating for men who identify as women to be able to compete in women's sports. Courts are being asked to determine if, if someone should be allowed to use the bathroom or locker room of the gender with which they identify. Our language has become distorted with people refusing the pronouns he, him, and she, her in favor of plurals they or them. Even more outside the box, notions have created completely different gender-neutral pronouns like Z and Zir. I have a friend who has recently left the pastorate to go into another area of ministry, and uh, he was talking about what he was doing and how he was doing. He, he's been a pastor for many, many years and now is going into this other area of ministry where he will not have a church. And so he was telling someone that he was transitioning and then the lady looked at him and said, are, are you a woman now? You know, our, our language has gotten 
jumbled. Today, people are being celebrated for casting off societal norms in favor of their personal identity. Drugs are being prescribed, hormones are being taken, surgeries are being performed. In some cases, parents are being prohibited from even knowing about, let alone blocking, the decisions their child is making about procedures to change outward appearances to conform to what they feel is their preferred gender identity. Things have reached a point where it is impossible for a public figure in a congressional hearing to define what a woman is. Those who insist on using masculine pronouns for biological males and feminine pronouns for biological females instead of the pronouns that person prefers for their gender identity are subject to censure, termination of employment, and in some cases in countries, accusations of hate speech leading to fines and even imprisonment. Those who resist accepting a male who transitions to female or a female who transitions to male are said to be unloving, hateful, transphobic. In this climate, the question arises, why should we even care? Why not just let them believe what they want to believe, act like they want to act, and accept them for who they are? What difference does it make if someone chooses to identify as a different gender? And the answer is, it doesn't matter if God's opinion doesn't matter. If you don't care what God thinks, then everybody is free to do whatever he or she or they or them or Z or Zer desires, and it's not a big deal. However, if God's opinion is important, then it matters a great deal. And we should care deeply about the choices people make and the behavior they exhibit, especially when it is a violation of God's masterful design for their life. Distinct male and female genders are present in the narrative that describes God's creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Distinct male and female genders are described in verse 22 of our text in Genesis 2. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib from which he had taken the man, which he had taken from the man. Regardless of how many hormones you take, how much surgery you endure, and how much makeup you apply, at the end of the day, at the core of your being, in the unseen realm of the 23rd strand of your DNA, God ordained some to have an XY chromosome, and he called them male, and God ordained others to have an XX chromosome, and he called them female. 
The psalmist describes what was happening in your formation in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When the writer says you are made in the image of God, that isn't talking about physical characteristics. God doesn't have a nose and ears and mouth like you have, or fingers or toes or skin color or hair texture. God is spirit. But the Bible describes him with both masculine and feminine traits in an attempt to communicate the full scope of his character and nature. That means it takes both male and female to demonstrate to this world the image of the divine creator. And I'm telling you, it wasn't an accident you were created male. It wasn't an accident you were created female. But God has graciously gifted you with your gender and given you the privilege of bearing this part of his image as you go into this world to represent him and his kingdom rule and authority. The message of the Bible is clear. Gender isn't an accident of nature. Gender isn't determined by a feeling or by a personal preference. Gender isn't created or corrected by a medical procedure. Gender is assigned by God when you are being formed in the womb. If you were born male, it is by divine design. If you were born female, it is by divine design. And to declare that you identify as a different gender is to say that God didn't know what he was doing when he formed you in your mother's womb. It's a declaration that you know better than God, and that is the height of arrogance. Your birth gender isn't a mistake to correct. It's a unique characteristic to celebrate. It's a cause for wonder and amazement at the wisdom of your creator. It's a reason to explore all the ways you reflect the divine image and how you connect with and help fulfill the divine plan to extend kingdom authority over creation. Now, if you don't care what God thinks... If you are determined to go on what you feel and rule your own life and be your own God, then none of what I have said or can say will matter to you. But if God's opinion matters at all to you and you have any desire to live according to his plan, then you'll recognize the embracing of a different gender identity from the one given to you by God at birth as a deceptive lie from the evil one designed to short-circuit God's best for your life and lead to your destruction. Not only does our text speak to the issue of identity, it also speaks to the issue of intimacy. In verse 18, when God said it wasn't good for man to be alone, he then said, I will make him a helper suitable for him. In that word helper, there is no hint of one being superior and the other being inferior. There's no hint of dominance and subservience. Helper doesn't imply inferior status, but one who supplies what is lacking. Helper doesn't imply competition, but one who brings 
completion. When Eve is created and brought to Adam, verse 23 gives his response. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then verse 24 gives this commentary. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the foundation for all God intends in a relationship. Here is the backdrop for every instruction about relationship, about intimacy, about sexual expression. God designed it so that man and woman fit together. They fit together physiologically. They fit together emotionally. They fit together psychologically. They complement and complete one another. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, two becoming one. Male and female are perfect fits from the standpoint of God's creation and blessing. In both the Old and New Testaments, God places restrictions and limits on sexual behavior. All of the prohibitions have their basis and rationale in this original design. Now, our culture has largely ignored these instructions. They have explained them away. They have created loopholes and justifications for not following them. But that doesn't mean God has given us a pass. What it really means is that we are choosing to live according to our own ways rather than God's ways. In the beginning, God placed boundaries and limits on sexual expression. It's like this. Um, Betsy and I have a fireplace in our home. And we really enjoy it. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely feature. Sitting in front of that on a dark, cold winter night with a cup of hot cocoa, a crackling fire in the fireplace, it's very romantic. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Don't look so shocked. <laughs> we can warm our hands by it. We can enjoy its beauty. We can roast marshmallows. But if we take the fire out of the fireplace and put it in the middle of the room, we have a serious problem. Come on. In the same way, when sexual intimacy is used properly, it's a wonderful blessing. It's a gift of God. The problem is that our society says there's nothing wrong with taking sex out of its proper context. Yet we see every day when it gets outside the boundaries set by the one who created it in the first place, it can be devastating. God's design calls for sexual intimacy to be expressed only between a man and woman in a committed covenant of marriage. Those who stay within the boundaries of his design are able to receive divine approval and blessing. The restrictions on sexual expression in God's word are there because they are forms of sexual behavior that disrupt the created order set into motion by the Almighty in the very beginning. Prohibitions against fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, they're all there because they are violations of the created order. God set it up in the beginning Sexual intimacy is reserved for one man married to one woman, and there's no place in Holy Scripture where that plan is ever altered. Every place when the Bible talks about it, it always talks about that being 
the way God intends. We live in a time when fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, cohabiting sex, friends with benefits, hooking up sex, is widely accepted as normal, and in some cases, even deemed desirable. But God's design from the beginning reminds us that when the man is joined to the woman and the woman to the man, the two become one flesh. Now, here's what's going on. And you, are y'all doing okay? Is this bothering anybody? All right, good. Too many are having sex with one, then breaking up and hooking up with somebody else, and then they go to somebody else, and they wonder why they can't find satisfaction and a sense of completion. I'll tell you, it's this one flesh thing God established in the beginning. Let me show you a picture, illustration. I, I'm just trying to keep your attention. When you came in, you, there should have been a paper heart on your seat. Did everybody get one of these? Okay, yours is a little smaller than mine. Mine is just for illustration purposes up here in front of you. Yeah, I, I, want to make, I want to make sure everybody has one of these. Okay, take, take that and hold it, hold it. All right, just, just hang on to it for a second. This is actually two hearts, obviously, a pink one and a blue one. They've hooked up. In that sexual act, they've been joined together. Maybe it was a one-night stand. Maybe it was, you know, just sex, casual sex. Maybe it was what we would call a romantic fling. Maybe they moved in together for a while. Put whatever name you want to on it. But they've been sexually intimate. That has bonded them glued them together whether they know it or not the sexual act has super glued them together physically mentally emotionally and spiritually God says they are joined together the two become one flesh and everything seems fine as long as you're together but when you decide well it's just not working for me you decide to call it quits when something happens and one or the other, or perhaps both, decide you're going to separate, you're going to go different ways, you break up and then you realize something tragic. I want you to go ahead and, and, and pull these two apart, would you? Just, just try to take your time. Be careful. Do it carefully. No matter how carefully you try, it may be possible to separate them, but not without a mess. Right? You learned this in kindergarten. You can't unglue something, not without tearing. Even when you get these two pieces apart, there's going to be a little piece of blue still attached to the pink. There's going to be a little piece of the pink still attached to the blue. And this is what you're going to bring into the next relationship. You can leave one and get attached to someone else, but you'll be fragmented. You'll be broken. You won't be whole. 
Then, you, then when you break up with that person, you'll leave a little piece of yourself attached to them and you'll carry a little piece of them away with you. And the more that happens, the more broken you become. I'm trying to help somebody stay whole today. You wonder why you, why you have trouble with commitment. You wonder why you struggle. You wonder why your mind drifts to someone else when you're supposed to be focused on the one you're with. It's because you aren't whole. Watch this. You're not holy. You've moved outside the boundaries in which this beautiful gift of sex was meant to be expressed. Oh, I know we've contrived all these justifications for our behavior. Pastor, you just don't understand. My needs aren't getting met. She, she doesn't really understand me. He doesn't truly love me. He loves his job more than me, and I feel neglected. She doesn't care for me. I feel taken for granted. Oh, and when I'm with him, oh, I feel so alive. When I'm with her, it's like I can conquer the world. Once again, we're choosing to live by our own selfish desires instead of God's truth. According to God's word, any sexual expression outside the covenant marriage relationship of a husband and wife is sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is the equivalent of idolatry. Colossians 3.5 spells it out when it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Oh, sure. You can have sex outside of marriage. It isn't illegal. And there are even some who will applaud or at the very least completely ignore it as something of no consequence. But you can't have sex outside of marriage and be pleasing to God. Just because it's legal doesn't make it moral or righteous. There are a lot of things that are legal that are unrighteous and immoral. Y'all hang with me for just a little bit longer. I'll get off of this and we'll do something else next week. Perhaps the biggest polarizing hot button issue regarding sexual intimacy in our time has to do with homosexuality. The prohibitions in God's word about homosexual acts are likewise grounded in this same creation story. One of the principal reasons this behavior is prohibited because it is a disruption and violation of the created order set into motion by the Almighty in the beginning. God saw it was not good for man to be alone, and none of the animals were a suitable helper for him. When God made a partner, a helper, a completion for man, he didn't create another man. Instead, he fashioned a woman. Males were created by God anatomically, emotionally, psychologically, in every way for pairing with an other, not a like of the same species. Women were created by God for pairing with an other, not a like of the same species. And there is nowhere in God's word 
where this is contradicted or added to. Now, I know this isn't a popular stand in our culture. It's an emotionally charged discussion. And in our world of redefined tolerance, anyone who runs counter to the prevailing wisdom is considered a bigot, closed-minded, intolerant, homophobic, and a few other choice epithets that aren't complimentary and shouldn't be spoken from the pulpit. Our culture is pretty convinced that homosexuality is inherent from birth, so they can't help it. And since God made them this, this way, then it must be okay with them. But in the research I've done, it seems that even some in the LGBT community, their historians aren't convinced this is so. Their scholarly findings conclude that sexual orientation isn't a core identifier like race or gender. Rather, it's fully a social construct. Even if they are incorrect, the Bible would still say to us the same thing it says about every other behavior it calls sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of believers in the middle of a sex-crazy culture. And here's what he said. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, which includes sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, now that, that's quite a list. To be sure, our culture increasingly makes no bones about sin in general. More people than we can count are idolaters, not to mention those who are sexually immoral or who commit adultery or who steal and are greedy and get wasted and revile neighbors and swindle others. It happens all the time. Each of these unrepentant sins is the same in the sense of God's judgment. The reason I feel compelled to even preach this section of the message on homosexual practice because in our day, this is the one sin in this list that is held up and aggressively applauded by whole groups of people. It is the one sin with countless advocates for considering it to be normal. It is the one sin which has people who hold positions of prominence speaking the loudest. See, adultery is still frowned upon by many. Accusations of greed will still smear a candidate's political campaign. Thievery is still not openly embraced, and there are no official initiatives saying it's okay to take things that don't belong to you. There's no such thing as a drunk agenda yet. There aren't any petitions that the government should abolish the driving restrictions of inebriated individuals. Reviling others still isn't seen as the best way to win friends and influence people. Swindling, especially on a corporate level, usually gets someone thrown into jail. It isn't because homosexual practice is any worse than any of these others, but in our day, it's the one practice that is getting the most attention and creating the most confusion. Now, after he gives this list of things which will incur God's wrath and keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this sobering truth in verse 11. Such were some of you. 
Let, let, let me remind you here. Let me just insert and remind you of a verse that should cause every one of us to tremble. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now think about that list in 1 Corinthians again. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. It's an incomplete list of sins, but James would say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that if you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of all. I just want that to sink in for a moment. Guilty of one sin, think of the most heinous sin that, oh, I would never do that. James says, if you, James says if you've committed one, then you're guilty of even the most heinous thing you could imagine. Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop by saying such were some of you. He continues and gives the solution to the problem when he says, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of your God. Hear me today. The message of the gospel is that we are all broken. We dare not look down our nose at someone in condemnation. We are all in need of being restored to the original design of our creator. But in the midst of our great need, there is some good news. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He said, we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could ever dream. Who we are is all wrong. There's no action we can take that will change our nature. What we need, what we must have is a new nature. Only then can we exchange sinful action and desires for righteous ones. Acting contrary to God's design and plan causes you to accept an identity other than the one God calls you. And that is the essence of sin. And the end result of sin is death. But Jesus took the punishment of sin in his death on the cross. And when we identify ourselves with his death, we are rendered dead to our human nature and forgiven all our sin. And then through Christ's resurrection, we are declared to be innocent and we are given the ability to live in a new nature, a righteous nature through God's own spirit. God established his plan from the very beginning is designed for sexual intimacy, is purity apart from marriage. The sanctity of marriage between a man and woman. Fidelity in marriage. Life lived in holiness before the Lord, in agreement with his word and his will. Now, there's a lot more that could and probably needs to be said on every one of these areas. Each one of these areas deserves 
not just its own message, but its own series of messages. All I've done is brush the surface and I've probably created more smoke than clarity. But I've already preached too long, so I'd like to finish up with this. Surveys reveal that 99% of Christian men admit struggling with sexual temptation. The other 1% are lying. I suspect the same is true of women as well. If that's you, you're in good company. You know what? The Bible is filled with characters who messed up sexually. Have you ever paid any attention? Lot committed incest. Abraham had sex with his wife's handmaid. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson, huh? He was a one-man sexual tornado. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Don't even get me started talking about Solomon. The list goes on. These were real people like us who struggled with sexual temptation. They failed miserably. But God forgave them. So if you've sinned in the past, don't despair. God can and will forgive you. Put your emphasis on getting into right relationship with the Lord, knowing his love and walking in obedience to him, rather than wondering if you're going to have to remain unfulfilled and miserable for the rest of your life. If you'll do that, you will find him to be more than enough, and he will be there to guide you step by step, one day at a time. I want to tell you, at the end of the day, the true Christian message is the most tolerant message there is. When we cut through the rhetoric, when we stop the hate on both sides of the issues, when, he, when we examine the practice in light of God's word, the true Christian message is an amazing countercultural message of hope and care and grace. It's the most truly tolerant message out there. It's a message that says God's word is true. If you don't believe and you don't practice God's truth, you're wrong, and I love you. At the end of the day, here's what I know. Pastor Larry, come, come play and stop me. Here's what I know. Number one, your attractions do not define you. If you've surrendered your life to the Lord and you're living in obedience to him, your primary identity is found in being a son or a daughter of God. Your primary identity is not straight or gay, it's being a child of God. Number two, attractions and desires aren't sin. 
your moral character isn't measured by a desire to be a different gender or by a same-sex or opposite-sex attraction. Your moral character is measured by how you live your life before God and others, saying yes to Him and no to the things that displease Him. That's what measures your morality. Number three, no matter your attractions or temptations, you are created in the image of God. The blood of Jesus was shed to redeem you and restore you to a right relationship with Him. Regardless of what you've done or where you've been, your past doesn't determine your future when you place your future in the hands of the Lord. When you surrender this area of sexual intimacy to the Lord, He'll give you a brand new start. Your life will be enriched, your relationships will be strengthened, and most importantly, God will be pleased. If you don't care about pleasing God, then it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. But if you want to be pleasing to God, accept what His Word says and walk in it. And He will give you the grace and the strength to be able to do that. You will not be able to do, to do it in your own strength. You just can't. Reality is you can't live any of life righteously without fully trusting and surrendering to Him. But if you'll surrender to Him, He will so enrich your life. I know you can't even imagine, you can't dream that it could be any, any different. You can't dream it could be better than what you can imagine. Oh, give God a chance. Give God a chance. I'm done. Stand. How's that for crash landing the plane? Let's bow together, shall we? Father, we are all in need of your forgiveness today. We don't all have the same temptations and we don't all have the same areas where we have fallen, but we are all in need of your forgiveness. So I pray today as we put our trust in you, and we make a decision to fully follow you even in this area of our lives I pray first of all that you will forgive us for sexual sins that we have committed and that you will deliver us from the chains that have bound us as a result of yielding to the temptations heal our hurts make us whole where we are broken Restore us. If I know anything about you, Lord, I know you are a God who specializes in redemption and restoration. And that's what I'm praying for the people who share in this service today. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us the discernment and the courage to flee sexual temptation. You never told us in your word to stand and fight. In fact, you said to flee it. 
run away from it because you knew that in our own selves we wouldn't have the strength to resist. So give us the discernment to recognize it and the courage to flee sexual temptation. And Father, probably most of us have a loved one that is bound by the lies of the enemy regarding sexual orientation and gender identity. Someone very close to us. We lift them up to you right now. And we pray that somehow there will be the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit into their lives. That, that scales of the lies from the enemy that have blinded them will, will fall from their spiritual sight. And they will be able to recognize the true condition of their heart. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will supernaturally break through to those people, to those loved ones. And that in tenderness and compassion, you will draw them to yourself. And that you will reorient them in redemption and restoration so that they will be whole by the power of your spirit I pray these things Amen Thank you for allowing me the extra time to go way too long today um still believe that God is a God of redemption and restoration. And I'm believing that he's going to do that not only in our lives, but in the lives of our loved ones. Perhaps I'll get a chance in, at a later time, I'm not going to do it immediately, but perhaps at a later time to spend more time with some of the many questions that I raised probably more questions I raised than questions I answered today. My goal today was just simply to lay out, here is the word of the Lord. Thanks for listening. <laughs>